Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 363rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Krista Madison. Krista is the Managing Director of Financial Planning and Business Development at Seabold Capital, a fee-only RIA based in Chicago, Illinois, that manages $300 million across more than 100 client households. What's unique about Krista, though, is how she used her business development and networking skills to overcome the challenge that sprung up when, through a combination of personal and professional shifts, she found herself building her book of business from scratch three separate times, and how she leveraged each of those pivots as an opportunity to account for how her own skills and competencies were changing and grow into larger and more lucrative opportunities. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Krista's start in insurance sales at Northwestern Mutual brought both success in building a book of younger clients just beginning their career journeys and challenges that she faced in hitting sales goals when her younger clientele were more interested in starting Roth IRAs and didn't need much insurance yet. How Krista's intensive networking event schedule and simple but uniquely branded way of following up allowed her to feed into a 10-3-1 prospecting pipeline in which on average every 10 prospects she approached three were interested in her services and one would eventually become a client, to allow her to continually rebuild her books of business as she transitioned, and how despite her skill set at networking, Krista still found that after having to start over three times, it takes three years on average for her prospecting to start to grow from scratch into a robust referral network. We also talked about how Krista overcame the unique challenge of maintaining professional momentum while building a family, which both prompted her to step into contracting roles when she needed more flexibility and then out of them when she wanted more stability again. How when faced with the need to find a new opportunity, Krista leveraged her networking skills to find and then just walk into the lobby of 20 local area advisory firms until she found one that was interested in hiring her and got the job. And the reason that Krista ultimately decided that as she approached her third time building a book of business, she wanted to build it in the RIA channel instead. And be certain to listen to the end where Krista discusses why she feels that her background and early experience in the insurance channel made her a stronger financial advisor and why she worries that advisory firms say may be underestimating the value of those kinds of experiences. How Krista's willingness to start over as a paraplanner in a fee-only firm led her on the promotional fast track to become the director of two departments in just a few years. And how Krista found that no matter where she went, her people-first prospecting approach helped her grow a client base, especially amongst those in need of financial guidance who lacked support because they weren't the top of the top financial prospects for other advisors, but were more than able to allow her to successfully grow her own practice. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Krista Madison. Welcome, Krista Madison, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here, and I'm honored to be included. Uh, I appreciate you you joining us today and, and, and looking forward to the conversation, talking about, as I think about just the 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 sometimes or often painful way that we have to just literally like navigate the industry to find like the right job, the right firm, the the right role for us. Um, you know, I, I, I've talked about this a little bit for my end on on the on the podcast over the years that I've I found this phenomenon with a, a huge number of advisors that 
uh, like we try so hard to find the right firm to work with when we join the industry. And it almost always seems to come out that the one that actually works is not the first, it's the third. Sometimes the fourth, but usually the third. There's like, we, we try a firm, we give it our best shot, but it turns out certain things don't fit or work. Uh, and, you know, we're usually young in the industry and learning what we don't know along the way. So then like you go to a second firm that's different than the first, whatever you really didn't like about the first one, you always make sure the second one does better on that thing. But then often we don't really hit it on the second one as well. But by now, like you've done something at one extreme you didn't like, you'd have done something in the other stream you didn't like, and you can start kind of triangulating <laughs> between the two. Sure. And I find like by the time you get to the third, often we find these these really good roles that 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 fit, that really uh, sit well with us, that we can really run with and, and grow our careers in. And so on the one end, it's incredibly frustrating to me that we all have to like do this in three hops with a lot of pain associated with it. Uh, but on the other end, I mean, there, there's for value in, well, the, the journey itself, but the value in hearing others that have gone through this journey to try to see and learn more about what choices other people made so that maybe we can cut down on one of those hops for, our, sure. for ourselves in the past that we're taking. So I'm just, I'm excited to talk about the the path that you've had, especially because you've, you've done one a little bit similar to to mine and living in in insurance world and brokerage world and and RA world and kind of spanning the proverbial channels and just how how hard it is I feel like to to find your place in the industry sometimes. Yeah, it's been tough. I I feel like I am the antithesis of strategic career moves. <laughs> uh cuz I've seen it all. So and I've done it all. I think you know, when I graduated from college with my finance and economic background, um, Northwestern Mutual recruits heavy out of college universities. And I think everyone is somewhat familiar with their recruiting tactics. They hire as many people as they possibly can and kind of throw them all up on a wall and see who sticks. Uh, they entice you with the the idea of being your own business owner and unlimited earning potential. Uh, for me, that was attractive. And when I graduated, I didn't even realize there was a planning community and opportunities to just work with clients in a planning capacity. So I always actually enjoyed the planning work more than the actual insurance work. Uh, but I felt like my only choice to be included in that community was to go with an organization like Northwestern Mutual that would give me the capability to work with clients if I had to place insurance products here and there to continue to do that, then I felt like that was my only choice. So, so, so I, so you came in like directly out of, out of college. This was the oh, like, yeah. first, first job out of college path for you. Uh, even sooner than that, actually. So I, I'm a little bit of an A type, a little bit. You, my husband could probably confirm that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, so as I was in my junior year at school studying finance and economics, um, we didn't even have a personal financial planning class because that was how early it was kind of in this community. Uh, I Googled top 10 internships in finance and Northwestern Mutual was one of them. So okay. it was like the top one or two. Uh, I know now that the reason why it's the top one or two is because as an intern, they license you. 
So as an intern, you get insurance licensed and they'll pay and, and represent you and sponsor you to get a license, which means from day one, you can start and do client facing from day one as an intern. Yep. So I kind of made that my goal to go and get an internship at Northwestern Mutual because that was on the list of top internships. And I succeeded in that. So then I did a summer internship at Northwestern Mutual. And then I went back to school. uh, And when I graduated, they transitioned me to a full-time representative. So when you were searching this out, did, did you know then that you wanted to do this like financial planning financial advice thing and and that's what you were pursuing with with finance econ as a background or were you a sort of thing like just finance econ business i know there's a group of people like they just kind of like the the numbers and the money things and don't really actually have any idea of what they're going to do with it out of college until you start doing internships and find things that you try and say sure. like oh this is actually kind of neat i think i might want to do this as my career yeah so so that's also <laughs> Another somewhat interesting story. Uh, So my expertise, um, I mean, I would say that I I get along with people really well and I connect with people really well. So when I was in school, I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, I was taking my gen ed classes and learning about, you know, psychology and I took an art class and I I had no idea. Um, My parents, my father was in printing so he was in the arts, and my mother is a computer uh, uh, computer engineer, I guess is what you would call them now, but in her day, it was a computer programmer, so she did computer programming. And I sort of initially declared my major in the arts because I wanted to go into printing like my dad did, uh, but then very quickly, I did, you remember, I don't even know if it's around anymore, remember the website monster.com that had all the jobs listed on it? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Like yeah, the, the the indeed.com of its era. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, I might be dating myself now, but <laughs> I'm okay with that. Uh, so I did a search on Monster one day in my dorm on how many fine arts jobs were available in, you know, my hometown. It's thinking like, well, if I graduate with this degree, what are my job opportunities? Right. And I got three jobs returned and two of them were telemarketing jobs that had nothing to do with what I was studying <laughs> for. <laughs> so I was okay. like, like, well, this is very forward looking up you to realize like maybe maybe that arts degree might be a little bit challenging for future jobs. Yeah. So, so I very much was like, uh, I think I should probably change my major. <laughs> uh, you know, the, my school had a great business department and a great business school that was built by State Farm because State Farm's headquarters was where I went to school. Okay. And I started there and I've always been pretty good at math and I've always enjoyed learning about the stock market in general. Um, So I said, okay, I'm going to change my major to, uh, first I started accounting and no offense to all of my wonderful contacts in accounting that I work for now, wasn't my area that I enjoyed being in. So um, I very quickly transitioned to finance just because of all the classes that I had. That was kind of like the closest track to finishing. Um, And that's where I kind of fell in love because it gave, this is going to sound a little strange, in finance, there's multiple solutions to a problem. In accounting, there's only one. And that's Mm. by design. It should be that way. Right. Uh, and I was able to tap into my 
ability to be creative and connect with people and think outside the box in finance, but I wasn't able to do that in accounting. So, okay. so, so that's that you I from the accounting side to the finance econ side. Of yeah. The- and actually the economics, it, you know, I only had to take two extra classes to get a double major. So I was mm. like, okay, why not? <laughs> so, yep. um, and then I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. And that's when I was like, well, I probably should get an internship before I graduated and Googled internships. I was thinking that I would probably go work for a bank or something in that financial arena. Uh, but then when Northwestern Mutual popped up, uh, I went and checked them out. So it, it was so random how I kind of came across this field. And then once I started working with direct clients, uh, I started kind of falling in love with more of the getting to know them and their stories and building good relationships with my clients. Um, You know, the product sales, I never really enjoyed too much. You know, I was never Mm. top of my recruiting class um, because I very much still wanted to do what was appropriate in every situation for every client. Um, But once I started working with them, I mean, I was, I was the first person in my 20 person recruiting class to finish my series exams because in my I, I was running around signing up all my friends with Roth IRAs <laughs> because that to me was more important. So that's kind of how I started falling in love with the planning thing. And then, yeah. Well, I guess that's notable. You weren't, you weren't running around all your friends to open up um, permanent life insurance, retirement savings contracts. You were running yes. around opening up Roth IRAs. <laughs> much, much to the chagrin uh-huh. of my uh, managing supervisor. <laughs> you know, uh, frustrated with me by putting $100 a month uh, deposits into Roth IRAs when that should have gone into life insurance. So, so I, I always, I guess it's, it's serendipitous that I am now in this planning world that I'm so passionate about. I just, it just took me, you know, a while to kind of find, find the community that I've thrived in. So, so how did this play out for you at the, at the insurance company? Like you're, you're go-gettering well, you're getting clients, you know, you're you're getting licensed fast, you're getting clients, but they're not necessarily buying the primary thing that the insurance company might have been hoping that you were going to be selling. Sure. So how did like how does this play out over over the next year or a few? Yeah. Did, did yeah, you so say, I, did that become a problem? I was there for three years. Uh, probably was a year too long but I'm not a quitter. So when things get hard, I just push through it. Um, and when, I'm not sure how many, how many listeners are used to how insurance contracts are built. It sounds like, Michael, you're kind of familiar with it. But when you are a captive insurance representative, you have a minimum amount of production, basically, that you have to do every single year. Yep. And if you don't hit that minimum amount, you, you're done. They let you go. Uh, so... I was just barely hitting that minimum amount uh, because I was doing, oddly enough, which now makes sense for where I'm at, I was doing more planning than the actual insurance work. And the insurance work was just kind of something I had to do in order to continue the planning. Um, But, you know, I wasn't charging for the planning. So I was doing the insurance work and doing the planning for free. And then if we came across some insurance need, I said, okay, fine, let's do, now we have an insurance need. Um, so I was there and for, why, and why weren't you charging for the planning? Work? I didn't even know. Well, first know of all, could or wasn't an option at that point because this was many years ago. I didn't know it was an option. I, 
I didn't even know that was an option. And I know this now, and I didn't know when I was there, but you know, I didn't have my Series 65, which would have allowed me to charge for advice. And at the time, you know, again, I want to reference the fact that when I graduated, the fee for advice was new. Like no no one was really doing it in my office. Can I ask, like when 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 did you graduate? Like when when were you entering into North? 2006 is when I graduated college. And I was working for Northwestern Mutual in 2005 because I started as an intern my junior year. Yeah. Um, So yeah, like hourly model is sort of out there with Garrett Planning Network, but not a not a lot. NAPFA is a much 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 smaller group at that time. Whole RIA channel was significantly smaller at that time, and like very very few people were doing any material standalone planning fees, and almost no one had like a standalone just charge fees for financial planning model. Right. I mean, but also keep in consideration that the the Northwestern Mutual, they make money off of insurance sales. So they didn't right. want people to focus on fee planning. Now now they're switching their tune because they are losing lots of people who right. want to do planning and you know them not giving them the capability to do that. Um, but they, I found out a couple years after I left Northwestern Mutual that they had this rule, which I'm sure has been lifted now, where only a certain number of advisors in the office could hold their Series 65 and could charge for planning. And in my office, that was three. So there were three advisors in my office that had Series 65s that had built their books there for years. And I would have not been able to do any planning in that office ever unless one of those three advisors died, retired, or left for some other firm. Well, which is... Particularly challenging because I, I know, like Northwestern Mutual in particular, it, for people who make it past their the initial years when a lot of folks struggle, their retention rate is ludicrously high at that oh, yeah. point. Like most most people who stay at, for five years at Northwestern Mutual stay for twenty five or more years at, yeah. at, at Northwestern you- Mutual, which means if you're if you're waiting for one of the three who has a series 65 in the office to get out of the way, like you could be waiting a long time. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I, I mean, to make a long story short, I, I didn't meet my production requirements to keep my contract and they let me go. So okay. there was not much I could do at that point. Um, so, and, and just in this, con- in this context, like you had clients and activity Oh, I it did. wasn't as though you couldn't get cl- couldn't get in front of clients and activity. It's just that the clients and activity weren't generating enough insurance revenue or just enough revenue overall. Because at the end of the day, like you know, a hundred dollars into a hundred dollars a month into a whole life policy gives significantly more production than right, like commissions than a hundred dollars a month into a Roth IRA Correct. fund. So, like you, you need a lot more assets and flows and business if you're putting it into investments and not insurance because you you get less dollars per client. So now you need like way more clients to get to the production numbers. Correct. Or clients with bigger pockets. And let's yeah. face it, as a 20-year-old out of college, I wasn't meeting with clients that had millions and millions of dollars to invest. Right. As you said, like we're opening Roth IRAs for people in my 20s because that's my that's my peer network at the time that I know and I can go to. Right, right. So, so that was it. And then, um, you know, talking about building and rebuilding and going somewhere else and building again, 
the other thing that I was unaware of, because uh, I didn't have family in the industry and I just kind of fell into it, was the fact that when you build a book at an insurance organization, you don't really own it. It's not yours. Right. Uh, so I left with a two-year non-compete and, you know, I'd, I don't think they, I didn't have any super large clients. So I think if I made a few phone calls here and there, I don't think they would have enforced the non-compete. Uh, but I, it's not like I could have taken my book with me. So. But so that becomes an even more painful you or you had some client volume activity, but you didn't have enough to meet the production requirements to validate and renew your contract, but then failing to renew your contract and getting terminated means you don't even get to keep the ones that you had. Yes. You have to basically start over. Yeah. Which is why, you know, I, I still have friends, very good friends that work in the insurance community. And, you know, there's definitely some players out there that give the insurance community a bad reputation. Um, but I, I can't blame them a hundred percent for, you know, doing what they're doing to make their own lives successful. So, but it, it was, it was probably a blessing that that relationship with me and them came to an end. So, so then what came next? Like yeah. So I doing it, but you don't have a firm anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so I definitely took about a month off to decide, you know, what, what I was going to do next. The other thing that is very prevalent in that industry is the recruiting is massively prevalent. I mean, they're, you know, they hire 20 people and two people will stay. Two people will be there after three years. So they're all, the hiring for that industry in general has to be so voluminous in order to be able to keep people that are successful. Um, so you're always getting, rec- I was, I was always getting recruited to go to other firms. Um, like even while you were at the insurance, well, we even oh, yeah. at Northwestern. Every, every week, every week I was getting calls. Um, especially once they found out that I had survived past that like two or three year, you know, right. time period, um, which meant, which meant I actually had the skills to prospect and business develop. So, right. Um, so I, I got approached by a bunch of people and again, still didn't know at this point that there was a planning community and that I actually could do planning work, but I still loved working with clients and the work that I was doing. So I kind of said, okay, I know this industry is for me. I want to stay in it. I want to be able to go somewhere that will allow me to continue to work with clients in the capacity that I like. I thought that being with an insurance broker dealer was the only option I had going to a broker dealer or going to an insurance company with a broker dealer. So my options were to go work for someone like Charles Schwab or Fidelity, where the production requirements were based solely on asset uh, generating or bringing in assets. So I could either go work for them and annually bring in however many millions of dollars of assets they wanted me to bring in, or I could go to another insurance company and, you know, place 20 insurance policies and keep my job. So I said, okay, well, I'd rather go back to the insurance world and build client relationships in a book there because no matter what the dollar count, I know that I can place the certain number of policies that they want um, based on need and the amount of people that I was seeing every single year. But what I didn't want was the 
requirement to bring in so many assets. Uh, because at that point, you know, my history at Northwestern Mutual, I wasn't meeting with people that had millions and millions of dollars. Right. Uh, so I started. So you're, still, so you're still meeting with clients that are more moderate means, right? Because you're in your 20s. So we tend to talk to people in our, in their 20s and 30s. So, you know, if Actually, I talk to it, enough of them, inevitably some of them are going to need insurance because they're just literally young people starting right. families and building careers and at the stage where they will likely need some, just bonafide need some life insurance. So if I have enough volume of clients, which I've got, and they're of the age that's insurance buying, it's going to be more straightforward for me to validate an insurance contract than right. uh, an, an asset flows-based investment contract. Right. So to me, that allowed me to work with clients in the capacity that I wanted to. Okay. Uh, so Why I started you who you wanted to work with. Yeah, in the capacity that I felt was important. So I started reviewing contracts, reviewing minimum production requirements, you know, what would be a good fit for me. And someone had approached me from Mass Mutual and said, Hey, you know, why don't you come over here, come check us out? And I kind of told the recruiting director what I was looking for. And they introduced me to a couple advisors in in the office that were already kind of operating in that capacity. Um, and they had the lowest production requirements on the insurance side out of many of the other contracts that I had read. Uh, so I so I thought that was a good fit. So I went there okay. um, and built my practice, started building it again. So this is the second build. So now we're on the second build because I couldn't take with me clients from before. So now I'm building right. again. <laughs> um, but, you know, I will say it, it was hard to lose the client base, you know, when I left Northwestern Mutual. But on the other hand, it allowed me to approach a whole different market. So mm. I was operating within a particular market at Northwestern out of college. So it was mainly people getting started in their careers. Well, after three years, I had gained one thing I will say about Northwestern Mutual. I, I don't I don't totally mean to knock them all the time, but they have the most incredible training program that I have ever experienced anywhere that I've ever been. I mean, if you want to go through the ringer and become the best prospector that you will ever be in your life. I, I jokingly tell people out of school to go work for Northwestern Mutual for three months, go through their training program and then quit. <laughs> it's fantastic. And a lot of my business development skills and my network building skills came initially from that. So, so what, what did, what did they like? I just, what did they teach you? What did you learn that was so, so breakthrough and impactful for you? Oh man, that's a big question. Um, so they have <laughs> people who are listening to this that are used to this program are going to start laughing. They have this thing called the one card uh, program. And the there was studies done on captive agents back in the, I don't know, I think it was like in the 50s. They, they followed around like the top 20 agents at Northwestern Mutual and had them write down every single piece of activity they ever did. Every single phone call, every single lunch, every single talk, every single time they asked for business, every single time they asked for someone to become a client. And they went through all the numbers to get down to a ratio of how many interested parties that you need to approach in order to get someone to say yes. Um, because I don't care, and this has become so true, because now now I work in a space with wealthy people. I mean, we we work with households between five to $250 million. 
And the thing that has shocked me so much is that the numbers are true. No matter what space you're in, no matter what industry you work in, no matter who you're targeting, the numbers are true. And it. So it, what's the breakdown? Like what's the what's the e- ratio that you found? Yeah. So for every, and if you're good, I will say if you're good, your ratio gets better. So this is kind of like entry level. You're just kind okay. of getting started. So for every 10 people that you kind of go up to and say, this is what I do. Are you interested? Three people will say, yeah, tell me more. And one person will become a client. And that's all I had to remember. So when I, when I started, yeah. And it's funny that it's funny that you say that because we would go to internship parties and there'd be the numbers 1031 on the, on the walls everywhere. (laughs) Well, which is fascinating. I, I have not been through the, um, I've not been through the, the, the Northwestern mutual system, but my, uh, part of my early career, I was at a firm that did that was very heavy into seminar marketing. So you know, do do direct mail mailers to the local area, invite people out to a seminar. It was on kind of retirement planning and estate planning, revocable living trusts, and then you you try to you you try to um, get them to engage with a comprehensive plan, and then and then help them implement whatever they needed. It was it was a brokerage firm at the time, uh, and. And and the the magic formula for us in that world was for every ten people who uh, show up at the seminar, three of them will schedule an appointment with you, and one of those will become a client. And like oh we gosh. literally, we literally talked about the same ten three one ratio. Wow, that's wild. Because I've I've only experienced it in our industry, but it it makes sense. Uh, yeah. And you know it. Rebuilding for me the second time did two things. One, it allowed me to approach a completely different market, a more sophisticated market with higher dollar volume because I had experience now and I had confidence. I did it once, I could do it again. And I also had all of the knowledge and background on how to build centers of influence and communities and track my numbers. And I knew if I wanted 20 clients that year, 30 clients that year, I could back into that number very easily because I knew what the numbers were. Oh, um, so, I, so you I just will, start working backwards. If, if I want 20 clients, I need 60 prospect meetings. If I need 60 prospect meetings, I've got to approach 200 people. If I got to approach 200 people 50 weeks in the year, like, okay, I need four or five people every week. So like if I'm talking to one new person every day, this should math by the end of the year. You got it. And it's just as simple as that. Now, if you have experience and you really know your systems and your processes, your numbers could get better. So I would say, you know, your numbers could be 10, 5, 2. Um, but typically when you first start, you've got nothing. When you, when you first start, you have nothing to go on, so you've got to use numbers from other people, and that's that's our starting numbers. So when I started at Mass, um, you know, building, building again, to me, gave me a chance to approach a whole different market. And that was exciting to me because, you know, I was looking for larger dollar volume. I was looking for more sophisticated clients. I was looking for the ability to make a bigger impact in the advice that I was giving. So I, I I am fascinated by this dynamic of because I had to start over, it was easier to go after a new or a different market. Because I find for a lot of advisors, like there is a pattern. We we 
we build somewhere initially and we kind of get good at that, but then we also get known for that. Those are the circles we move in. We start getting more referrals of that. And on the one end, if if that's a good enough market for you to grow in, then you can grow in it. But it, it's really hard to change, like to change yeah. our identities, to change who we're going after, to to you know, intentionally pursue a new market while not atrophy or while not losing who we've got already. So I'm I mean I'm sort of fascinated by this. Well, I was forced to rebuild because of the circumstances. So I had to start over from scratch. And that just made it more straightforward to not do what I was doing before and just go after a different market segment that worked better for me. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that had to do with confidence, right? I mean, I was hired right out of school. What did I know? I I didn't know very much. Uh, so I set my sights within a range that, you know, meeting with people like myself, I was going to mention a statistic that I thought was extremely interesting, which I'm not quite sure where this came from. Uh, clients will work with you within 10 years of your perceived age. So if you're 30, then you will work the best with clients who are 20 to 40. Now, that's not to say that there aren't outliers, but that's kind sure. of they're the people's comfort level of of where they like working. Yeah. Uh, so I've seen that a lot in the advisor community as well, that a lot of us have a, a client base that are us plus or minus 10 years. Right. You can make a better connection. So, so the, the ability to jump into a whole different market, I think a lot had to do with confidence because I had been doing it for three years now. So in my mind, I could handle more sophisticated planning items. Um, and I didn't have a planning quote unquote department. So it was just me. It was me and my assistant. Right. Uh, and yeah, on losing my book initially did give me that ability to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and approach this whole different set of people. So how did you define the new market that you were going after? I mean, just who who was your ideal client that yeah. you were targeting when you got to do this fresh and new? I mean, my my ultimate goal, you know, when I first started, I was meeting with a lot of single people who just graduated college because that's what I was. I was right. a single person, just graduated college. Uh, so my new market, I really tried to focus on people who were five to 10 years into their career. I didn't really have a specific niche uh, as far as industry or role uh, and married married couples five to 10 years into their career and working for, I didn't really do too much kind of like privately owned stuff. I did more larger firms. So if you worked for a, if you, and also keep in mind, I'm from Chicago and my office was downtown. So I think I maybe set up a lawn chair outside the Accenture building and just met with as many people who left uh -huh. the as I possibly could. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and that, that was my goal because, you know, those people they had good benefits. They had good job security. They were making good money. Um, they needed advice. Nobody else was working with them because they weren't, you know, the top of the top. Right. Um, so, and it was a good market for me and they had, they had needs. So one of the, big things that is prevalent that I don't think will come to a surprise to anyone is that the best clients are the clients who care about things more than just generating wealth. When they care about themselves, their families, their spouses, their children, those are the best clients because their their motivations are not solely uh, transactional. So how are you actually just prospecting and getting in front of all these folks in general, I guess Accenture folks in particular, like how are you actually getting out there and getting in front of them to do the 
the the ten three one formula. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm kind of systematic about building my networks and I will say, and I don't, I don't think this is a statistic anywhere. I think this is just from my experience. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to this too, but I've rebuilt three times. So three times I've built networks and usually your network will start producing benefits for you organically. I'm not talking about acquisitions because that's something completely different and much faster. But organically, if you build your network properly and you work really hard at it, it'll start producing and reaping lots of rewards in your third year. So, and I knew that from being at Northwestern Mutual. It takes three years. Three years. years. Two years, two years to build trust, two years to build connections, two years to build your network and your name out there. And then on the third year, you start seeing turns. So, and then the other thing that I always knew is that you need at least three different ways to get introduced to potential clients. So for me, since I didn't have a massive budget because it was just me, you know, my first thing I did is I went to three networking events downtown in the city of Chicago every single week for the first two years. Every, every week I was going to three things. What kinds of things? Everything. Being in Chicago, I had lots of opportunities, right? Um, But, you know, maybe some listeners are not in large metropolitan areas, but every, every metropolitan area has a chamber of commerce. Every metropolitan area usually has like a, you know, maybe a lunch group or um, a, a group that gets together once a month to discuss business practices or whatever. The interesting thing is people who are good at networking know other places to network. And if you build a network of people who are good at networking and get to know them really well, then you go to events and they go, oh my gosh, you got to check this event out. It's really great. Okay, great. I'll be there. Then you go to that Um, event and you meet someone there and then they go, oh man, you you like this one? You're going to like this one. You should check that out. So like, so you became the active networker who found your networking buddies because they were at many of the same networking meetings that you were at. And then you get to share notes about other networking meetings that some of you don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great because you, you know, in the beginning I went to everything, everything I could think of, I went to, I was looking up events on Eventbrite. Like you can go into Eventbrite and type in, you know, business meetups and, and go there. Um, there's other networking calendars. Like if you just go and Google networking calendar in your area, your geographical area, there's, there's something bound to come up. And you, you just go there and you build like this community of people who are also good networks, networkers themselves. And then you learn which ones work well for you. So that's, that's where the work comes in. You kind of have to go to everything first, experience some that don't really fit well until you find ones that you're like, wow, this is, this is good. This is a good community. Good people come here. It's worth it. I, I also did free and paid ones. I can tell you the paid ones are always better. <laughs> the, really? free, the free ones are tough. Um, cause what, what makes the paid ones better? You get a higher caliber of professionals that show up. So I, I think it's probably pretty well known in our, in our community and in all communities that finding someone who's really great at building networks and introducing other people to relationships and relationship building. I mean, it's, it's a skill that not everybody has. And when you go to paid events, serious people are there because they're paying to be there. They're there to make connections, build relationships, find out how there's some way we can help each other, you know, get an idea of 
how we can share the abundance, right? It's the abundance mindset. And, and so just curious, like as you go through these networking meetings, I feel like the the challenge for a lot of advisors is just literally like, how do you introduce yourself and explain what you do? So were you, uh, did you have the uh, 30 second elevator speech thing that you created to tell your story? Did you do it a different way? Like, how do you, how are you actually introducing yourself and trying to get, you know, 10, 10 intros down to three meetings? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone going. this is an interesting question and I, I am not, let me think of the best way to say this. Um, when you're at a networking event, I know this is going to be mind blowing. Nobody really cares what you do. <laughs> Nobody cares. There, a lot of people there are there to have fun. They're they're there to meet people. Yes, there is a component of like this is what I do. But the best connections that you make when you're networking are getting to know them as a person. So some of the best networking meetings I've been to, where the best centers of influence that I've built relationships with, will talk at the network meeting. I won't talk to anybody else. I'll just talk to them for an hour about all their passions and their background and where they're from and what they're interested in. And, and we get, we get to know each other on a personal level and then I get their card and then I leave and I look at their card and go, Oh, that's what they do. (laughs) So I did have like a canned, Hey, I'm a financial advisor, wealth manager. We work with clients with this particular uh, area um, but I would usually then say, but tell me about you because everybody wants to talk about themselves. So, And then do you follow up with them on the car? Like, is there more of an ask in the, in the follow yeah. up? Just how, so, do you, how do you actually turn this into a business opportunity? In, in my opinion, this is where people really struggle. Um, every, and I, I do this now in a slightly different medium, but I've been doing it my whole career. There aren't very many women in our business. I think it's getting better, which makes me very happy. Um, it, I think it's getting better and more women are coming into the industry. Um, but I, I, I used to love to do things that separated myself from the crowd of advisors by like using my fact that I'm a woman to kind of, to my advantage, I guess. Uh, and as a as a positive, and so I used to <laughs> so silly. I would get the most sparkly pink thank you cards, <laughs> and I mean you get if for for listeners who aren't in this demographic, I mean you can use anything you want. But every single person, whether they were a good connection, a bad connection, if I met you and we talked, and I have your information you're getting a handwritten thank you card from me in the mail two days later. And, and, and it's going to be a memorable card because it's a sparkly pink thank you card, which yeah. you are probably not getting from any other advisor you met at the networking meeting. I mean, that was my process. I mean, I don't know if it's flawed, but that was my process. Um, so I sent out, you know, handwritten notes and I will say this, which is surprising to date, and I've been in this industry for 18 years, I have yet to receive a thank you card from someone that I have met at a networking event, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. So, because I send out at least, now that I'm in business development a lot, I send out at least 15 to 20 a week, at least. 
Um, it takes a lot of time and effort to actually write them out, but man, I mean, is there a standard script of what you write? No, I, I write what we talk about. So when I meet with someone at an event, I'll put notes on their card saying, you know, loves horses, has two kids, lives in, you know, lives on the North shore. And then when I send them their card, I might say, it was really nice to meet you. I really enjoyed talking to you about your family and your horses. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Just, just like a short and, little. And how do you capture those notes? Because just that's, to me, that's an interesting thing. You're, you're in a networking meeting. You're talking to people left and right. Sometimes it actually gets hard to, to keep everyone straight. So, yeah. so where, I, where do you keep the notes? When you're done talking to someone, you got to write on the back of their card. Just like two or oh, three you would cards. scribble it on the business because you're exchanging business cards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which is, it's made it slightly more challenging now that when I meet with people and they're like, I have an e-business card and I go, oh no. I was just going to ask, <laughs> like, what, what happens as we shift to more digital business cards? Like, so that's actually kind of a prop problem. For- uh, I mean, you adapt, right? So it's, yeah. it's all about adaption. So I have a very wonderful assistant right now. Um, and my assistant when I was at Mass Mutual would do the same. Uh, although I didn't have to worry about it too much back then because everyone still had paper cards. But now now that I'm running into some e-cards, I will very quickly pull out my phone when I'm done with that conversation before I get into the next conversation. And I will, we use Microsoft Teams, so I'll Teams notes to my assistant so that she has it. Okay. And then when I come in, she'll she'll give me the notes so that I know who it was and what we talked about. And so okay. she, my poor assistant, she's used to it now, but I'll be at an event and she'll get a note that says, John, three kids, horses, North, North Shore. <laughs> now, before I had to prep cards on my own, but now she preps cards for me. Um, when I come in, she gives me my notes and then I'll say, oh yeah, that was so-and-so. And then I will give her all the information. So, okay. so that, that's how I'm handling it from an e-card perspective. But if we're talking about follow-up, I mean, they would get a handwritten card from me. A week later, I would call them to set up either a coffee or a lunch. So, and so sort of consciously here, they get the card to within two business days of the meeting. The call then comes a week later. So they've received the card. They remember the pink thank you note. Like they, you're, you're, you're still relatively top of mind when then you say, I'd, I'd love to set up lunch. And what's the con? Like, I just want to set up lunch to get to know you more and more better. I want to, Talk yeah, to I mean, you that, about how I help people with their finances. Like how that depends on the conversation that we have at the event. Okay. Right? So if if I meet with someone at an event and they are an awesome networker, let's say they're a, an attorney, a estate planning attorney, and they're a great networker, they're easy to talk to. We we they have lots of clients they work with. Like estate planning attorneys are power partners for us because our clients need estate planning. We tell them to go get estate planning and then we send them to an attorney. So we, our two power partners, power COI partners are estate planning attorneys and CPAs. That's who we send the most clients to. So if it's an attorney or an estate planning attorney, I mean, my, my goal for lunch with that estate planning attorney is just to get to know more about their practice, not necessarily for business per se, uh, their own personal business. Um, so I want to get to know their practice. I want to know what clients they work with. Um, it's when you go to networking events, it's extremely apparent if you have intentions strictly just for business and not networking intentions. 
So it's, it's very important to me when I go to these events that I'm there to make good connections and make good relationships and where those lead is where they lead. I, I'm not necessarily there saying, hi, you should work with me. Hi, you should work with me. Hi, you should work with me. Um, Cause you never, you never know. And it's also not the time or place to, to talk about personal finances. So, so though, and then, but naturally once I also get to talk about our firm and what we work on, you know, a handful of those people usually say, oh, that's really interesting because I have blah, 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 blah. And they kind of go into their own stories. Um, if I meet with someone at an event who maybe indicates that they really do need help or they're struggling, well then, yeah, that coffee or lunch might turn into like, tell me what you're struggling with. What can I do to help? So so it's those lunches and coffees are introductory meetings for exploratory reasons. Um, hence the reason why the, the three-year time mark. I want to have three good conversations with people and that's it. Okay. So three, I want to have make three good connections. And if I make three good connections, I will have considered it a, a success. Okay. And, and so if you get several of those a week, you get like, you might get 10 good connections in a week, which ironically gets you right back to like 10, three, one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so then you're sending out thank you notes to all of them. Then you're doing the follow-up calls to, to get the meetings. So is this where like 10, three, one starts to kick in? If you, if you send out 15 to 20 thank you notes at the end of the week, like you're going to yeah. get, you're going to get a third of those actually turn into meetings that people will take you up on. Oh, well, so no, <laughs> it's, you're not even at that point yet. Oh, okay. That you're setting that up. So the 10 people are 10 people that you've said, this is what I do. How can I help you? How can okay. I help? How can I help you in the capacity of what we do? Okay. So the networking meetings, you know, if I sit with an attorney and we just talk about the, the attorney's business and how we could share business. Okay, that's that not, that's that not part that. of the 10, right? Okay. But if the attorney says, Hey, by the way, you know, my existing person X, Y, Z. And then I say, well, that's what we do. You know, if you're interested in taking a step with us on your own personal concerns, then here's the process. And we have a, a process for that. So then he turns into a 10, a one of the 10, okay. right? So it's, the 10 is someone, you approaching someone saying, here's what I do. Here's what we specialize in. Would you like to go through the process? Um, and if you meet, if I meet with those people that I met at events and that conversation doesn't materialize into that, then I can't count that as a person in that particular process. Yeah. So, so now keep us moving forward on this, this journey as it's evolving. So that's two years, first year, three networking events a week, second year, one networking event a week, third year, maybe three networking events a month. Because once you have your network built, then all you got to do is just stay in touch with them, right? So it, it's a lot of effort in the beginning, but then once you build it, it's it's there for you. Um, and then you start turning business in the third year. Um, I mean, you'll, you'll turn business in those first two years. It just won't be as prolific and, uh, and flowing as you right. will in that third year. I just find like the... The first two years, the the results come just literally directly from the activity. One one meeting and conversation at a time, and if you talk to enough of them, then some of those turn into business. Right. Somewhere around the third year, like basically referrals start showing up. Like some of your tens start showing up, and you didn't have to go out there and find them. Exactly. Your way from someone 
and they're more qualified and they're already part of the 10. So you don't have to do the prior work to get them to be part of the 10. And so the whole flywheel just starts to roll fast. Yeah. And the, those are the best, the, the ones yep. that come that you don't put too much effort into. <laughs> yes. um, so, you know, it took me time to build that up again. And then clients came, you know, the flow came and the practice was successful. I mean, I, I enjoyed being there. I feel that I built, built a pretty good practice there. Um, I was able to do a lot of planning. I still wasn't charging for it because I didn't know that that was a possibility. Uh, and I don't think my firm would have given me the option to do that. I think at, when I left Mass Mutual, they were just starting to be like, oh, now, now you can charge for planning advice. Okay. Um, and until my time at Mass Mutual also came to an end. <laughs> so, so what happened at Mass? Was this a similar phenomenon of I'm continuing to get clients and 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 grow, but I'm still not getting enough insurance related activity to qualify the insurance contract? Yes, that also happened, and I, I think this starts get into the some of the struggles that I have with the with the industry in general. I had my son. So during the time that I was at Mass Mutual, I got married and um, my husband and, and I had a child. And when I had my son, you know, I, I no longer wanted to do meetings on weekends and evenings. You know, I wanted to spend time at home with my newborn. And my whole plan was to build a network and build a practice that would give me the chance to kind of take it easy a little bit in the first couple of years of my son's life. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of actively building, just maintain, right? Build a book, maintain it right. while my son was small. And then when he got older, I could jump back in and start to build it again. So that was, that was my plan was to maintain. Well, if I wasn't actively building, I was not meeting my contract minimums to okay. for production. Right. So I, you don't, you know, re recurring revenue fees are great for personal revenue, but that's not how insurance qualification contracts are built. It's all yeah. business. It's all new business. And, and that's the, the fresh, one of the frustrating things about the insurance contracts is January one hits and you're back at zero. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to start all over again. So I very politely asked, you know, the powers that be in my office, if I could transition my contract from a captive, um, a captive representative to what they would call like a broker status, more, more like a broker. Um, brokers have no production requirements. They just have access to the products and vehicles that the company has. But it, it, it would have allowed me to maintain my relationships with my book. Right. Um, I kind of told them, hey, I just, I'd like to transition to a broker temporarily while my son is small so that I could maintain my relationships. And then, you know, when the time comes and I feel comfortable, I'll, I'll jump back in it and start building again. Uh, my request was denied and my contract was canceled, and I lost my book for the second time. So they, uh, like they they were they were they denied it, and then you couldn't just like couldn't get to the production requirements, or they literally like terminated you for like for asking because they didn't want to work with you if you weren't trying to grow anymore. Um, you know, it was like halfway through the year after I had given birth. Uh, and then I said, you know, I, I, I'm realizing that this is much tougher to meet my requirements now that I have this newborn at home. And I had request, I knew I wasn't going to meet it. So I, I had not, I hadn't yet failed to meet the requirements. I went in and said, I will not meet them. 
I would right. like you to could see what's coming because you know what what how you're planning to change the way you're spending your time. C- correct, um, and at that point is when they terminated me. So, because yeah, that you was said you're not going to qualify your contract. So that was definitely a, a bigger blow that I was not prepared for. <laughs> so, so what happens at that point to you and your clients? So I had a non compete. Uh, I had a two-year non-compete and I had, you know, I, I had a fair amount of clients that I would still occasionally keep in touch with. You know, that, that transition was a tough one for me because I, I had d- built a pretty good book after five or six years. Um, and, you know, I couldn't take it with me because that's not how the contracts work. And I, I really had to do some soul searching because at that point I, I feel like anyone would get to this point. I didn't know if I wanted to stay in the industry anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, most most people don't stay after the first time. You have to start over if you lose your book of clients, much less having it happen more than once. Yeah. So I I stayed in touch with a handful of clients that I was really good friends with. And, you know, I, I referred them to other advisors. They, they told me that they would follow me if I went somewhere else. But at that point, I, I didn't have it in me to go somewhere else and start again. Um, plus, I also had a newborn at home. So well, I didn't want to have to start again. I was going to say, the whole point of this was dialing back new business activity while the newborn is home, ideally while you can continue to be in maintenance mode with existing clients and revenue. So you still didn't want to be in building mode at the time. The bad news now is, and you don't get to continue the maintenance. Right. Sort of the maintenance revenue from the clients and assets you've got. Right. Because they terminated. So I did nothing for a while. Um, I introduced a handful of clients that I really cared about to advisors within the firm that I was still really good friends with and trusted. And I just kind of enjoyed being at home with my newborn for a little while, which was nice to have that opportunity. And and then at that point, since I'm kind of a busybody and needed to keep going, you know, I said, I have all this experience. I'm, I'm so good at running a practice and building communities and building networks that, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of advisors struggle with that. Why don't I just go to advisors? You know, I knew a ton of advisors because I had been in the industry for so long at that point. I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to go to them and ask them what they need help with and work for them. Uh, on a contract basis. So at that point, I I like to say I started a consulting firm, but it was really just me (laughs) going Mm -hmm. to advisors that I knew in the community saying, what are you struggling with? What's, you know, if you had unlimited time and you didn't have to worry about all this other stuff that you're doing, building this practice, what's like one thing that we can help implement in your practice that would take you to the next level? And they would let me know. And that was, that's what we would work on. So it was, it was, a little bit of a comfort to kind of be not on the client side, you know, working with advisors was, was a refreshing change at that point. Um, and I didn't have to worry about building, creating, putting a new book together. Um, and I did everything from, I did a lot of sales work, a lot of, you know, you're unhappy with your current market. How do we get you in a new market? You need to increase your new prospecting flows. Maybe, you're spending too much time on internal office work and you need more time out there to prospect so you can build to the point where you want to build on. Um, one advisor came to me and said, Krista, I just, I'm still on paper and I need to implement a CRM. <laughs> right. 
And I said, no problem. I, we can do that. So we, you know, we hired interns over the summer. We scanned all of his clients' files. I taught his staff how to use it. I downloaded it on his phone, showed him how to access all the information. Uh, so it was, and, you know, you do one project and then the project ends. And then usually they, the project goes so well, they're like, oh, stick around and do this too. Stick, stick around and do this too. Right. So it actually, there was a decent amount of work that I could do just with advisors on any capacity, you know, when, when you run your own book, you do it all. So I pretty much could go in and say, I can do it all. Just tell me what you need help with. <laughs> so, so, so then what comes next on this journey? So I got pregnant with my daughter and when you're a consultant, um, I feel like a lot of people who are listening to this will understand the fact that, you, you know, you don't have benefits. So I, you don't have health insurance, you don't have benefits. Right. I, I had health insurance for my husband. My husband was still working full time, you know, in a, in, he's in telecom. Uh, but I, it was three years of consulting, three and a half years of consulting. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of the jumping. I was jumping from place to place. So I, I wasn't really building a track for myself. I was just kind of making ends meet while my, my son was little. Um, and I, and I kind of told myself, okay, I, I'd, I'd like to go somewhere now. Like I'm, I'm kind of done jumping from place to place with, you know, no, no really knowledge of kind of what my income would be like for the year. I have no benefits. I, I want to grow roots somewhere, I guess is, is an easier way to say it. And, um, I also missed working with clients. It had been three and a half years of working with advisors and no client interaction. So I wasn't doing any planning. I wasn't working with clients. So, and I all, and at that, at this point I had finally discovered the fee only RAA world. (laughs) Okay. So I said, you know what, if I ever, if I ever get back into planning or the client world, you know, I I really want to do it in the fee only space. Um, so I, and how did you Find, like, how did you find it, or what had you not not found originally? That like suddenly you you yeah. found now at this stage. Somehow, I don't remember how it was, but somehow I got introduced to XYPN. Okay. It, it it either was an ad or you know something I received because I still hold on, held on to my licensures. I mean, it, and that's kind of how I discovered it, um, and then. And then the world kind of opened at that point because then I kind of read what XYPN was and it had all this, you know, language about fee only. And, and it was, it, I don't remember when it happened, but definitely felt like a light clicked on in my head going, this is what I want. Like this, I want to work with clients in this capacity. Um, and that's kind of how I found that whole fee only REA community. Um, so. So did you want to go like hang your own shingle with oh no I still was not (laughs) I was still recovering from losing my practice you know four years ago um from mass so I I was kind of at a point where I'm like I don't know if I could do that right now (laughs) I got a call from a recruiter I was doing consulting and I got a call from a recruiter saying I have this planning operation or this planning company and they are interested in hiring a planner and your qualifications are great. You know, will you go talk to them? And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm looking to hang my shing or like build roots in an organization somewhere. I'll, I'll go talk to them. And they were a CPA firm where they were transitioning. They were like implementing planning into the CPA firm. So the CPA right. firm had been around for a long time. So they had a lot of CPA clients 
and there the there was planning kind of layered into that and they were doing planning for like two or three years. Um, so they were looking for a planner to kind of help them build that out. And I, and so I met with them twice and I thought the opportunity fit well. Um, it seemed like a good place to be. So I said yes. And I started there, but it didn't last long. (laughs) Um, so what happened? I, and I can't, I, I can't a hundred percent confirm this, but I was pregnant with my daughter when I was interviewing with them and kind of made it clear that that was the case. Uh, and I was let go very quickly. I, I think I was there for three weeks. <laughs> no, yeah, like very, very quickly turned around. Yeah. So, I mean, it was so quick that it was like, okay, don't, I didn't even do anything. I'm not quite sure exactly why I was let go other than the fact that, you know, I was in this condition. So it was, that was also so they didn't not ideal. Give a reason, just we've decided not to move forward after all. G- correct. Um, and I called the recruiter and said, what just happened? I've, I'm so surprised right now. Yeah. And they wouldn't even give the recruiter a reason. So, so it's, that was also not ideal. Um, and you know, another reason why I try to advocate for those of us who are out there in this industry, like raising families and, you know, having children and have all these other things that I think some people look at as maybe a distraction. Um, but that was rough. I I will say now though, it was probably a blessing because I would not have found where I'm at now had I had not kind of gone Mm. through that. Uh, and you know, where I am now, I have great opportunities and they've, my owner's been really great to me. So, um, so then, you know, at that point I didn't have anything and I said, Oh man, I have to find something. So that's when I made a list of fee only planning, uh, operations, 20 mile radius of my house. And then I just went and started interviewing. So how did you find them? Um, you know, there are publications that post the REA firms in the Chicagoland area, like Investment News. Investment News always comes out with, hey, here's the yeah. top 100, you know, REA firms in Chicago. Um, I'm sure they do it in other cities too. Yeah. So it uh, that was easy to find. Like, oh, hey, okay. uh, here's this 100 fee-only planning or REA firms, some hybrid, some, some fee-based, some fee-only, right? Right. And... I just looked at where their locations were and said, okay, well, here's, here's a good list of them. I'm going to go talk to them okay. and see, see who they're hiring and what they're looking for and you know, where, where I could fit. So. so what was the outreach? Cause I know just some advisors that have tried to sort of network their way around this way and find advisory firms to, to get jobs with and just have struggled at the end of the day to get meetings and find opportunities. So what, what was your, what was your actual approach on this? Oh my goodness. Um, I, I'm not going to condone this as a, as a method because it may not work for everybody. <laughs> okay, but uh, I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. So I was on a very, very fast uh, time crunch. Every day I was getting bigger and bigger. So uh-huh. I, I very much needed something very fast. <laughs> Um, so I printed my resume and physically walked into all 20 offices and sat in their lobbies until someone talked to me. <laughs> awesome. You just <laughs> like found their firm and 
what brought your resume and just said like I'd I'd like to talk to the owner or someone in management about opportunities at your firm. You know, I I met with the person in the front and said, "This is my experience. I've been in this industry forever. This is all I've been doing. Um, I'm extremely skilled." And can do anything. If you put me anywhere in the firm, I can do it. <laughs> like, you want to put me in marketing? Great. You want to put me in meeting with clients? Excellent. Like, like you have to remember at that point, I, I was pregnant. So I was kind of like, hey, I, you, you give me something to do, I will take it. <laughs> and was the idea you wanted work like while you were pregnant, like before, were you searching for something to say, this is what I want to do? After, like, I'm pregnant now, and then I'm going to have my daughter, and then after, you know, maternity time off with my newborn, then I want the job. Just like, what was the, what was your actual timing for work at this point? Uh, I had no plan. Okay. (laughs) So my my plan was to work with that firm that I get hired at, and you know, have my daughter and take my maternity leave and and go back and be an employee. You know, that was my plan. So when they let me go, my you know, my strategy at that point was very much like, I just need something. Cause I, I didn't know what else I had no plan. Right. So if, if I found something that fit and they were a great firm, why would I not stick around afterwards and do other stuff with them? Um, if I found something and it wasn't a great fit, okay, well that will play itself out over, you know, over time You, you learn pretty quickly at that point, if it's a good fit for you. So, um, you know, ultimately, I would have loved to have worked in planning. I, my resume said planner. You know, that was my, I had done everything at that point, but I said, you know what, I'm just going to find a planning position. They'll put me in a planning department. I'll run plans, you know, do right. do Monte Carlos, put spreadsheets together if that's what they want, you know, help help support an advisor. That's, I'll do that. Um, so I just went into those offices and talked to the person in the front, gave them my information. And I basically said, I don't know who does the hiring here. And I'm not even sure if you're hiring at this point, but you know, I, I feel like I have a lot of skills that can help the firm. And if there's a match, then great. And if the hiring manager has five to 10 minutes to come out and chat with me, I would appreciate it. Um, and some of them came out and talked to me right away. And some of them said, Oh, well, thanks for stopping by, but they're really packed today, but they're open tomorrow. Why don't you come back tomorrow? So that's what I did. So did 1031 work here so, <laughs> on the hiring, the recruiting side? I don't, I don't know. I, I have to tell you, if you're a statistics person, my statistical sample was not large enough for me to generate a 1031, um, Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. But you, you got a job offer or two at the end? I did. So the, the firm that I'm at now is actually was one of those firms that I okay. walked into and, and spoke to the owner you know, it's a smaller firm. So the owner was in the office when I came in and talked to him and did gave him the game, the same, you know, talk that I gave everybody else, just kind of told him my background and what I was good at. And, um, and he said he would take a look and let me know. So I left and he sent me a message through LinkedIn the next day to come in for an interview and that, and here I am. So so what's the so what's the current firm in the role then? So like bring, bring yeah. present. So we're we're an independent fee only REA. Um, my role that he hired me for <laughs> was paraplanner. I was just a paraplanner, um, which you know, given my experience, probably overqualified for. But at that point, again, I said, "Hey, it's in planning. I will take it. That sounds amazing. I get to work on clients. I get to support you. I I love it. Let's do it." Um, I'm assuming that was a 
compensated as a paraplanner as well? Like not C- correct. Okay, so not necessarily at the dollars maybe that you were shooting for. No, I, but you know, at that point, it, this may sound like I'm underselling my capabilities. You know, I was just happy to have the opportunity because. Uh, let's just say that my interviewing experience being pregnant in this industry was not ideal. <laughs> okay. Um, I I very much interviewed with a particular person and we went through everything and I gave him all my experience and he goes, oh my gosh, your experience is wonderful. Like you're very easy to talk to. I, I love everything that you're showing me. And then, you know, I informed him about my condition. I know you're not legally supposed to, but in my mind, if I was a business owner and I hired someone, I would want to know if that person was going to be out for three months, you know, fairly shortly. Shortly after they get hired. Yeah. 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 Cause I, I don't know. I, and maybe this is my personality, but I feel like if you're a business owner and you're hiring someone with a lot of capability and anytime someone goes on maternity leave for that long, you need someone to cover them. Right. So, so it was, I felt it was only fair to kind of include that that was going on in my family life. And it was very important to me. Family is number one to me. And it was very important to me to be with my daughter after she was born. Um, So I kind of said, Hey, you know, this is my condition and I'm definitely want a maternity leave. Um, I didn't ask for anything drastic. I just wanted regular FMLA, which is unfortunately in our country, only 12 weeks unpaid. Which okay. but it's it, unpaid. It's not like here comes it like I'd like to start with you and then get a couple months of paid leave as right. soon as I start. Like you were willing to take unpaid. Just I would like to have a job and then still have one when I come back after. Yeah, yeah. FMLA in the United States is twelve weeks unpaid. That's that's what we're entitled to. Um, so that that's all I was asking. I felt like I was asking what everybody else like the minimum of what everybody gets. You're, you're now seeing organizations that offer paid leave, which is fantastic. I'm glad that that's kind of transitioning towards there, but at that time it just wasn't, wasn't an option. Um, and you could, you could just see the color drain from his face within, you know, a second. And then he kind of, his face fell and he looked at me and went, Oh man. (laughs) And I said, I will see myself out. Thank you very much for your time. (laughs) So, so at that point, you know, when I got offered the opportunity as a pair planner, you know, I was just happy to have the chance to, to be doing something that I felt I was capable of doing and having the opportunity. So. And, and so what is the size and structure of the firm overall? We manage right now 300 million of assets and the number of families, I mean, it varies um, but right now we're probably at 150 clients, maybe 100 households. But I, I started in the para planning department, and you know I I like to think that very quickly I kind of proved my ability and my skill set uh-huh. was beyond what that role was like re- what that role was responsible for. Um, so I I kind of grew into a planner, and then I started meeting with the clients in the book and built good relationships with them and, you know, became director of the department and started hiring planners to train. I think that happened about two years uh, into my time here or about a, maybe a year. Um, and then, you know, when, when 
my owner and I sat down and he talked to me about his desire to grow, you know, I, my, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that, you know, my most valuable skill is the ability to build networks and, and be out there. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So here, here comes the third round of, of building new networks and making connections. And, um, so now you're in a business development capacity again. C- correct. So actually, I, I was doing no business development for the first two years that I was here. I, I will have, I, this is my fourth year that I've been at this firm. Um, and I only started doing business development my third year. So this will be my f- second full year of business development activity. So what's it like building a client base for the third time? <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, it's the same. <laughs> um, I have a little bit of a larger budget now, which is nice. That allows me to be involved with communities that maybe financially I wasn't allowed to before. Um, or not not allowed to, but financially were, were more tough to get into. Meaning, meaning like networking groups you have to pay more for? Uh, like associations. Like join, joining larger associations, um, okay. you know, going so, to charity events, things where the ticket to be there isn't 35 bucks. The ticket to be there is, you know, $250. So, okay. Um, but I will say this. So my, not only do I enjoy the business development side, or, or am I good at it, but I also very much enjoy it. I, I love meeting new people. I you throw me into a room with a whole bunch of people that I don't know. And it's definitely the area that I most thrive. Um, I love getting to know people's stories. I love making connections with people. COVID was very hard for me, if you can't tell. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and, you know, helping people out. Like I, I get just as much enjoyment out of getting a referral from a trusted connection as I do giving a referral out. Because to me, it's, it's all about making everyone successful around you. Um, I think too many advisors in, I, in our industry has the, have this scarcity mindset. I, I got that from the insurance industry. Too many advisors in our industry have what I call a scarcity mindset. Oh, if, if I have this business, then it's not your business. Or if you get that business, then I don't get it. There's so much business out there for all of us. I'm, we need to start helping each other. Doing this you know, combative back and forth scarcity mindset doesn't help anybody. Um, and it doesn't help, you know, the reputation for the industry in general. So it's it's fun to kind of be around people and surround myself with people who are supportive, who are interested in my success just as much as I'm interested in their success. So building it again in the capacity that I am in now um, has just been another journey. And I, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been fun. So what surprised you the most about this just like journey of building your advisor career over nearly 20 years now? Um, I mean, I think the one thing that through my experience in working with advisors and being in the industry, you know, it, it actually was slightly difficult for me to find a role in the REA space coming from insurance. Um, I, I will fully admit there are definitely players in the insurance area who maybe don't have the most ethical motivations. Um, But there are plenty of wonderful people as well. 
but the amount of opportunities that I think maybe I've been passed on uh, because of my insurance background, it it took an effort to get because into the RA community. Because they just presumed if you came from the insurance world, you weren't like you weren't going to be aligned to the firm. Or my my skill set was geared more towards the uh, transactional nature. Okay. Right. Where like, oh, they're coming from Northwestern Mutual. They're coming from Mass Mutual. All they're interested in, all they have the skill set to do is transactions and not relationship building. Right. Um, and that, I will say, surprised me beyond no other. I I was getting turned down for roles at REAs because of my insurance background. Which I only find amusing because for most <laughs> advisory firms, like – the struggle in a lot of the RA channel right now is organic growth because a lot of us don't like don't have strong business development backgrounds. And so you actually coming with a strong business development background and a track record of success were not appealing to them because you have like the exact skill set most firms actually need. I guess I maybe I don't know. I, I still don't know. I I don't know why. I mean, there's, there is a, and I'm not sure if this isn't totally true. There is this general sentiment in the REA community that people who come from insurance or broker dealers don't have the appropriate skill sets to work in an REA capacity. Or it, maybe that's how they feel. Uh, to me, it doesn't make sense because we're all meeting with yeah. clients, we're all building relationships you know, we're all trying to build a book. Um, the amount of advisors that I used to consult for who would look at resumes, because I some of the advisors I consulted for said, hire people. I need, I need people, go hire people. And I would bring them resumes and on the resume, it would say, you know, New York Life or Mass Mutual or Northwestern Mutual. And they would say, no, immediately, without even giving that person a second thought. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Like if you want client facing experience, those people have the most client facing experience. Do you know why? Because if they did not sit with clients, they would not eat. Yeah. I mean, at least have the conversation to find out like, look, if you're concerned that it's someone who's, who's too transactional, because to be fair, there, there is a lot of that from the insurance channels because that's, that's kind of how the model gets built when you go to zero every, every January. But great. Not all of them. I mean, almost by definition, if they're coming from the insurance channel and talking to your RIA, they're looking for not that. <laughs> Agreed. Well, and if if you think about it this way, how hard is it to teach someone the ability to connect? And, and I'm not talking about business development. You know, hiring for business development, that's tough. You know, and to find someone yeah. who really has those skills, that's really hard. But if you're hiring someone to help you with your existing book, you know, tag team with you on meetings, run plans and build good relationships with your clients, would you rather take someone that has zero client facing experience and teach them how to run a good meeting, know what good meeting flow is, you know, emotionally connect with those people in that meeting as well as, you know, competently describe what your planning concepts are. That's a that's a tall hill to climb for someone that has never sat in a client meeting ever. Or would right. you take someone with insurance background 
who has four years of client-facing experience, although they were selling product, and just teach them how to shift their mindset just minorly from a transactional nature to a planning relationship nature. Um, I mean, to me, the shifting is easier, but I, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for you on yeah. that one. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure why there's that hesitancy uh, for people with that background. And the other thing that is also shocking is the fact that, you know, if if someone's trying to get involved in the in the industry and they do have a family or they do have other things that are important to them that people automatically think that they can't be successful. I mean, that's that's not cool either. Um and doesn't doesn't make sense to me either. Um so it's I'm very much I'm very much an advocate for talking to people at least initially and not just immediately dismissing them because of their backgrounds. I mean, if I'm not a good recruiter. It's definitely not my forte. <laughs> but one thing I did learn in my recruiting work is that a resume is the most horrible predictor of whether yeah. or not someone's going to be able to do the job well. <laughs> so eliminating someone on that alone is has always been a little tough for me. So so that that's one thing that's shocking. I mean, the other thing that's shocking is just in general, and I think this is getting better, is just the the industry kind of moving towards you know more open career paths and giving people the ability to participate in the industry in many different forms and functions. You know, when I when I got out of school, you either produced or you were an assistant. Yep. There, there was no other path. Um, and now you have research and trading and planning and which which I love. It gives the ability for people who maybe don't have the skill set to produce and don't want to just be administration to participate in the industry and, and grow in a career that would be, that would be fruitful for them. So what was the low point for you on this career journey? Um, I think when I, when I lost my book at Mass Mutual, that was, that was the, the biggest blow. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to stay in the industry anymore. Uh, Cause that was, that was really tough, but you know, at, at that point, what nothing else, sounded attractive to me. It, you know, I didn't want to go back to school and do something completely different. Um, you know, going to law school wasn't in the cards. <laughs> uh, and I, I knew, I always knew in the back of my mind that I was good at what this industry needed. You know, I, I could do it well. Um, and I think once I got done with the consulting and said, you know, there, there's got to be someone out there who is going to appreciate my skill set and want to utilize it to its full capacity. Um, and that's, I think that's what kind of kept me in the industry. So, so what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you, you know, 10, 15 years ago, as you're going through these like Northwestern and mass mutual dynamics in the, in the early years of your career? I think it would have been, Finding mentors that are outside of my space. So when I when I first started at Northwestern Mutual and when I was at Mass Mutual, I had a lot of friends who were other producers who would give me advice. Um, but I I wish maybe I would have found someone outside of my immediate producer circle to kind of give me a more more unbiased like you know 
because they're they're all with the firm that you're at. So of course, all their advice right. is going to be, you know, stay and tough it out, stay and tough it out. Um, it it would have been helpful to have found someone outside of my circle. Right. You know, in the planning industry would have been fine. Maybe at a completely different broker dealer or at another planning firm to kind of bounce ideas off of, um, and someone who was experienced, right? So when I first started, first of all, there's not very many, many women in the industry. So I didn't really have anyone to reach out to. There were zero women in my Northwestern Mutual office when I started. All the women were receptionists and all the men were producers. So that also was a little tough. <laughs> um, but fi- finding, it would have been nice to have found someone with experience outside of my circle who could have given me kind of advice on what, where, where a good path would lie. Um, and just for me to bounce ideas off of that, that would have been helpful. So what advice would you give just younger, newer advisors coming into the, into the profession today and trying to figure out their path going forward from here? There's really no perfect position when you first start. I mean, you, you just need experience. I, I'm going to jokingly say go to Northwestern Mutual and stay there for three months and go through their training program. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, and that's kind of my main, you know, your, your, your career will take you in many different spaces. Um, and I think your moves here and there are definitely important. But ultimately, especially in the first five to 10 years, you know, all you're doing is just building experience until you get the idea of, you know, what's going to be your perfect rule and where, where you want your motivation or where your motivations are. You know, are you, are you going to stick with research? Do you want to be client facing? Do you want to run a planning department one day, but you don't want to go business develop? I mean, business develop is really difficult and it's not for everybody, Um, but that doesn't mean you can't have a successful career in this industry. So as we wrap up, just this is a podcast about success. And and one of the things I've long observed is the word success means means very different things to different people. And so you're on this wonderful track of building successfully for the career now for the third time. The career success seems to be flowing well for you. How do you define success for yourself at this point? My my success hinges hinges critically on my relationships. Um, when I when I was at the insurance companies, we would go to these big meetings, these big annual meetings where they would invite all the producers, and they would parade producers across the stage who were multi million dollar producers, and give this air of "Don't you want to be them?" And from the first meeting that I was at, you know, all those people were having multiple health problems. The relationships within their families were not great. And, you know, it, it was funny because I had the opposite reaction. I said, I don't really like being a multimillion dollar producer at the expense of not having healthy relationships that with people that I care about. I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. Um, so for me, success is defined as being happy with in my profession, being happy within the role that I'm in, being professionally challenged so that I'm growing as a person but never at the expense of my relationships with the people that I care about most, which include my family and my friends. Um, Because what is life all about except having healthy relationships with people? Um, Working with the clients that we work with, 
no amount of money can fix broken relationships. It's, it takes investment in yourself to make that happen. Um, so that's, that's kind of my definition of success. If I can thrive within the role that I'm in and continue to be challenged, but also have the capability to have healthy relationships, I, I consider that a win. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Krista, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.